Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Benjamin Hegarty, a McKenzie Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Melbourne and the author of The Made-Up State, Technology, Transfemininity and Citizenship in Indonesia. The Made-Up State is published by Cornell University Press in 2022. The Made-Up State is an ethnographic history of Waria, a category of transfemininity in Indonesia. It situates Waria against the emergence of the technological state, particularly during Suharto's New Order. The book positions gender at the very centre of the story of how citizenship is defined and governed in Indonesia. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you very much for having me today. Ben, the past few years have been a very difficult time for LGBT Indonesians and for trans people in particular. Perhaps you could begin by explaining the situation for listeners who are not familiar with Indonesia? That's right, Michelle. So since the end of the new order, with the fall of Suharto in 1998, along with kind of really exciting developments in in the context of democratisation and the possibility for lots of different people and groups to make claims to recognition, we've seen a backlash against particularly trans and gay Indonesians, gay and lesbian Indonesians. So ever since the the end of the new order, since around 1999, we've seen violent forms of attacks on political gatherings of trans and gay and lesbian Indonesians, moving right through uh, kind of in an ongoing basis until the events of 2016. And so in 2016, we really witnessed what we might see as one of the first moral panics uh, since the end of the new order. And this moral panic was firmly directed at gay, lesbian and Wadia Indonesians in particular. So we saw various political figures, religious figures and other groups make claims that LGBT Indonesians are not compatible with the nation and that they therefore should be rejected from the nation itself. So that's a, a brief overview of the events of the past 20 odd years now. Yet at the same time, as Maya's story, the story with which you open the book reveals, as with so many things in Indonesia, attitudes towards trans women are anything but black and white. Can you please tell us a bit about Maya and her relationship with the people in her community? That's right, Michelle. So, of course, this kind of movement towards, I guess, a less inclusive or tolerant Indonesian society is not necessarily linear or straightforward. So Maya's story, or Mummy Maya Puspa, Uh, is a wadia with whom I open the book. And I paint a picture of her leaving her salon, which is in a relatively poor neighbourhood in a kind of crowded part and rowdy part of Jakarta, leaving her neighbourhood and kind of being swept up into the everyday life of an evening in that city. And so as, as people who have spent time in Jakarta or perhaps other large Southeast Asian cities will know, You've got a very kind of busy and and heterogeneous group of people living together. And that includes Indonesia's Wadia, of which Mami Maya is a very prominent example. Yeah, in the book you tell us about a man she meets going to the mosque, going to pray, and you mention that he greets her with a respectful tone, he doesn't rubbish her or treat her with disrespect. And I think that this really struck me because, of course, it's very easy to read the increasing piety of Indonesian Muslims as a direct and very real threat, as you said in your opening comments, towards LGBT Indonesians. And yet relationships in communities are not always that way, or even in officialdom. Later in the book, you reference a 1973 case in which a prominent Muslim scholar appeared as an expert witness in support of a trans woman's petition for legal recognition following gender reassignment surgery. Obviously, this case was significant for many reasons, but could I ask you to reflect on what it tells us about the Muslim establishment's attitude towards trans people at that time and the extent to which it's changed in the decades since? So the case that uh, you refer to in Chapter 3 of my book describes that of Vivian Rubianti. 
a prominent, in a sense, celebrity, in part due to her the status that she took as Indonesia's first, I guess, legally recognised change of gender, and a well-known beautician as well, working in a salon in the south of the city. So basically, just to give it a recap of or an overview of what happened in, in the case of Vivian, was that Vivian went to Singapore in 1973, and while there, she undertook consultation with a group of doctors, including a well-known surgeon called S.S. Ratnam, and then underwent uh, gender reassignment surgery, Now, gender reassignment surgery being the term that was widespread or, or used in general at the time. So when she went, went to come back to Indonesia, she encountered some trouble in that her passport listed her as male, in a way her, her legal gender remained male, but she presented as a woman, of course. So what she was able to do was, was gain special access to return to Indonesia, and upon her return, commence legal proceedings in a Jakarta District Court, to change her legal gender. So this case attracted enormous amounts of attention in the popular press and all manner of public intellectuals and scholars and you know, average people made commentary on, on this case and, and particularly what it meant um, in terms of understandings of gender. So the person that, that you've referred to, Michelle, is a very famous Indonesian scholar called Buya Hamka. And Hamka came out in support of Vivian's case very early on. So he made the claim that if people like Vivian existed, who were suffering from a kind of imbalance, as he put it, or were kunsa, using an Islamic term that's generally used to refer to intersex people, then, and medical science was there to help them through surgery and so on, then why shouldn't it do so? So what I think is important to kind of restate is that many different actors were mobilised in support of Vivian's case. So you had Adnan Buyung Nasution from LBH, Hanifa Wignosastro from University of Indonesia, and Kusumantan Negoro, also a psychiatrist from the University of Indonesia, all kind of made claims, expert commentary, and were witnesses in that case. Now, what we can see here is, I guess, the overlapping domains, I guess, of secular and religious knowledge at play in the Indonesian legal system, which is a, is a kind of common phenomenon across the field. But also, uh, I guess, a sense that in Buya Hamka supporting Vivian's case, he's not necessarily supporting a kind of radical concept of gender or accepting the place of transgender Indonesians in the nation. Quite to the contrary, he's saying that so long as transgender Indonesians abide by a kind of narrow set of precepts and concepts about what it is to be male and female, incorporated into that being, of course, genital morphology, reproductive capacity and so on, then an individual should be able to access both services, medical services, and the legal means through which to obtain access to those categories. Yet this case, if anything, what I, what I argue in the book, really reinstated the centrality of a fairly conservative interpretation of the gender binary, as central to defining Indonesian citizenship. And I guess that's not surprising, but at the same time, I do wonder if a court case like that came before the courts now, do you think prominent Muslim scholars would stand up and argue for the rights of trans women to be seen as women? Generally, no. Although even until this day in Indonesia, we can see court cases like this take place. So in Indonesia, to change your legal gender, it's not um, impossible, as Vivian Rubianti showed. And in fact, Vivian Rubianti's case and a subsequent implementation of the strengthening of the capacity of Indonesian hospitals to themselves undertake gender reassignment surgery, which they, which they did in Jakarta, and the development of expertise in that area, we saw the establishment of legal guidelines around the management of trans, really what we could call transsexual and intersex people. So in Indonesia, as I kind of alluded to earlier, guidelines for intersex and trans people have been uh, medical guidelines and legal guidelines for trans and 
intersex people in Indonesia have often been kind of bound up together and not easily separated. And that ambiguity remains until this day. So if you follow the Indonesian press from time to time, you'll see stories, particularly these days, of trans men who are able to change their legal gender but without any kind of surgical intervention in ways that echo precisely the case that Vivian um, first underwent in, in the 1970s. Yet a more common experience, unfortunately, for trans women when they seek any kind of access to the legal system, and many trans women struggle to gain access to state-issued identity cards, it's important to say, when they try to do things like change their name, for instance, which, which is perhaps more common than changing their legal gender, they'll face intense forms of scrutiny and what we might call transphobia in the courtroom. So they'll be mocked publicly in the courtroom, they'll be chastised, they'll be asked questions related to whether their parents are kind of happy with, with them looking the way that they do. So there is this kind of, in a sense, ambiguity where there is space still available for, on some occasions, individuals, and it seems to be trans men under the rubric of definitions related to intersex people, even if they are trans people, can gain access to a change of legal gender, whereas trans women struggle to obtain the same um, legal recognition. That's really fascinating. I wonder what, what explains that. Do you think it's related to masculinity and, and perceived threats to it? Why would trans women face so many more barriers than trans men? Yeah, I think I should also say that trans men do face many barriers as well. To me, from, from my reading of cases that I've seen over the past few years in particular, that those cases seem to have less of a, a difficult time than, than trans women. Perhaps it's got something to do with the immense visibility of trans women in Indonesian society and the fact that much public discussion, I guess, and public knowledge about what we might call queer gender and sexuality in Indonesia often relates to trans feminine visibility. Yet, let's not forget that waria is itself a term that draws on binary concept of gender, but does so in a really fascinating way, and then it combines two Indonesian words, one Indonesian word for female and one Indonesian word for male, wanita and pria, to make up waria. Now, of course, one of those words is male. And so I think within the Indonesian social and legal landscape, to the degree that waria are recognised in, in the Indonesian legal system, waria are almost always recognised to be, to some degree, male. And I think it's this ambiguity that generates specific conundrum when waria encounter agents of the state. And I guess there are some broader parallels there in the visibility of gay men in comparison to lesbians through the region and the different ways that they are treated. But we've talked a bit about the legal interactions that waria have with the state, but of course another primary domain in which they experience the state is in the regulation of public space, especially in cities. Why was 1968 such an important year for waria in the city of Jakarta, and how has their relationship with that city evolved in the decades since? So in 1968, a group of waria gathered together at the residence of the governor which is located in Taman Suropati in Menteng, and made a claim to him, Ali Siddiquan, who was the governor at the time, that they resented being rejected from public space. They resented being forced to kind of hide in the corners of the city and not be able to or not permit, be not permitted to walk through the city streets dressed as women, which is how they, they wanted to dress. And so this was a really kind of remarkable moment in a way. This was the first time, in a sense, that, to my knowledge, that Wadiyas or Indonesian trans people made such a claim on state officials. And what was perhaps just as remarkable was Ali Siddiquan's response. So rather than saying, kind of, go away, you're a nuisance, and around this time, Wadiya were very much framed as a public nuisance, uh, kind of, you know, gathered along city highways, uh, soliciting sex at night, 
wearing inappropriate clothing, generally making a nuisance of themselves. This was the general way in, in which Wadia were framed. Ali Sadiqin, rather than saying go away, said, certainly, we will recognise you so long as you make an effort to improve yourselves. So that is improve your appearances. So in the context of that conversation, what happened was that Ali Sadiqin uh, and Wadia, it's a little bit unclear where exactly the term came from, decided that there would be a new term used in relation to trans women, and that would be Wadam. So Wadam is the term uh, initially developed. It was replaced with Wadia in 1978, but more or less it means the same thing. However, Wadam, rather than combining words for male and female, female and male, combines uh, the words for Adam and Eve, the biblical figures from the story of Genesis. And so in both this terminology, this shift in terminology from the older terminology, banchi, which is a terminology, a term that's still used today and has a rather derogatory connotation, but was the only term available really prior to 1968. We had a new term, wadam, which impressed, I guess, a new kind of improved modern femininity associated with trans folks. And a new way of presenting oneself in the city. And that was a kind of presentation or effort to see oneself as kind of participating in national development by being beautiful and aligning oneself with international norms of feminine beauty at that time. And, of course, this took very public expressions, didn't it, including some very high-profile beauty contests. How did Jakarta society react to these events? So there was a range of responses, as has always been the case in, in Indonesia, uh, that it wasn't a simple matter of acceptance or rejection really on an everyday level, but it was perhaps a little bit of both. So what I think is important to say here is how much effort or emphasis was placed on controlling Wadia's visibility or presence in public space which was really at the heart of, of why Ali Sadiqin was actually interested in them. So oftentimes Ali Sadiqin is sometimes seen as this figure who was extremely fond of Wadia and was incredibly supportive of trans women. I'm a little less optimistic about the role that Sadiqin played. After all, he um, was a member of a former member of the Navy, if I'm not mistaken, and really approached the city as a military battlefield. That's how he referred to it as. And so in this context, he saw Wadia really as a public nuisance, as a problem to be solved. And what he was looking for was the most efficient way to do so. And so for him, it was Wadia becoming more beautiful, integrating into productive domains of society. And so one role that Wadia could take in that respect was to become beautiful. Now, that was the state at that time in Jakarta, you know, let's remember this was the beginning of the new order, you know, a military regime, but one that supported various kinds of foreign investment and development. So we also saw the rise of various spaces for consumer capitalism and leisure, um, the Jakarta Fair being a well-known example. So although there were fairs in, in Jakarta in back until the colonial period, and really in a sense this took on the same, a similar mould. In 1968, we had the first Jakarta Fair, and Wadia played a really important role at that. They were, they were there right at the beginning, and by all accounts, they were seen as a novelty, something really interesting, and something kind of, in a sense, uh, uniquely Indonesian and uniquely modern at the same time. Yes, and of course, this all occurred at the beginning of Suharto's New Order, a period that you explain early in the book is remembered as a golden age by many Waria. On a personal level, this didn't surprise me because when I first encountered Indonesia in the early 90s, although I'd already moved from regional Australia to Sydney, which our listeners might know is a world-renowned centre of LGBT culture, I still remember being struck in Indonesia by the visibility of gender non-conforming people, not just in big cities, but also in small towns. But what was it about the new order that made it so Waria friendly do you think? So the new order was remembered as a golden age by almost every Wadia that I spoke to who was alive at the time. And this struck me as really kind of amazing, right, that such a consistent shared narrative should be held by a pretty diverse group of people from different parts of Indonesia. 
for the reasons I think for the fact that the new order was was a period that saw the kind of emergence of you know new terminology as we've we've kind of covered you know wadam and wadia are both new order inventions as well as new spaces for the performance of of trans femininity in particular so it's it's not to say necessarily that the new order was kind of a queer paradise by any stretch of the imagination but that one particular highly stylized form of being wadia in a sense uh, of being trans established itself as a form of visibility that could really carve out, I guess, a niche form of recognition. And I call this a kind of you know, legal but non-conforming status in a way, in the sense that Wadia was seen as definitely non-conforming, right? something that was unusual in society, but was nevertheless admitted you know, in all kinds of spaces and domains, right, across forms of legal recognition from the city um, to a degree at the level of, you know, degree of integration into state uh, national level regulations, particularly related to Department of Social Affairs and their schemes for rehabilitation, you know, as well as in popular domains of films and television and stage performance and, and cabaret. So, in thinking about why why the new order was was a space where Wadia could emerge, I mean, I, I think there's really an intersection here between an emerging emphasis on or a kind of renewed emphasis on order and gender really being a central part of that story. So, of course, the new order is famous was famously a very heteronormative state. That is a state that was founded on various principles related to the family and masculinity and femininity, males and females being defined on on a fairly rigid binary in terms of their relationship to, uh, for women, the household or the domestic space as housewives, and for men, the the productive sphere of of work. Um, But Wadia really, I guess, cleverly negotiated or cleverly leveraged this particular moment where you saw that heightened emphasis on binary gender by generating their own kind of version of binary gender. So that was, as I mentioned before, you know, a combination of male and female in a single body. What's really interesting is, is the way that state officials and, and society alike, within particular contexts, also saw this as a kind of sensible and perfectly reasonable format for understanding gender. I think the reasons for that are are a little bit more complicated, but I think really what is at the core of opportunities for visibility at the new order is on the one hand that emphasis on on order and Wadia's ability to capture it, as well as the emergence of of new spaces for various kinds of feminine visibility related to beauty in the context of really the emergence of a, a developmentalist state that emphasised to a degree participation in consumer capitalism and leisure, at least on an aspirational basis. Hmm, It's really quite curious, isn't it? But let's come back to this question of space. And of course, within Indonesia's cities and towns, salons have always had a very special significance in Wadiya culture, not just as a space where they're normalised, but also as a space of community. Can you tell us about the various purposes that salons serve for the Wadiya community in Indonesia? So salons are an absolutely crucial part of Wadia social life. And it's really hard to understand Wadia without going to a salon, getting your hair made up, if you're getting married, being made up as the, the bride and groom, and in general kind of engaging with Wadia as everyday beauty experts who can dispense advice on how best to accomplish modern norms of femininity and masculinity. And they've shifted over time, obviously, what it is to look like a woman or look like a man or a wadia indeed hasn't remained stable. And so nowadays, you know, and wadia salons are still a feature of Indonesian urban life and village life indeed as well. I would say that they are slightly less visible than they were perhaps during the new order and perhaps even 20 years ago. Um, But they remain an important part of wadia social life. So I was in Indonesia last week and I, I went to a Wadia salon and it was in a small town, I guess, in East Java. And I hopped on a motorbike and we were going off to see a Ludruk performance later that night. And I hopped on a motorbike with my friend and off we went into you know a very regular, ordinary looking kampung in Java, through down a couple of alleys. And 
off in the distance I could see a, a large bright sign advertising a, a Wadia salon and very visible in that on that sign was that this was a Wadia salon. And so we went into the salon and a whole group of people were, were there. We had a you know, there were a few Wadia, there were a few gay men, there was me, you know, gay Australian. Um and we all kind of gathered and we sat around smoking and having a drink and and chatting until we were ready to go to the performance. And in that salon, you know, there were there were the you know basins for washing hair, a mirror, um, you know, and a chair for cut for cutting hair, a collection of trophies that were was won by that prominent warrior in her community. And I chatting with her on her motorbike on the way to the the Ludric performance, I you know I asked just asked her about her experience in this community among neighbours. She said she'd, she'd been born and was brought up in this kampung. She opened the salon some 30 years ago and that she'd always felt safe and, and welcomed in that particular community. So I think that basically illustrates, that's one illustration, one story of one night in one salon, but I think this would be a story repeated perhaps every night in cities and villages all around Indonesia to this day. And, I mean, we know that in Indonesia in the last few years there have been quite vicious attacks on various communities of difference, um, including different religious communities and so on, by some Muslim extremist groups, um, Muslim vigilantes. Have warrior salons become a target for those kinds of attacks or have they been protected by this status in the community? They have been protected to a degree and through precisely the kinds of dynamics, I think, that I referred to just a moment earlier. So in Indonesia, an enormous amount of emphasis is placed on one's position as a warga, and particularly if you are a citizen, as an indigenous citizen or a local inhabitant, and a warga asli. And so in the case of the waria that I just described, and to a degree Maya, Mummy Maya as well, although she originally migrated from Sumatra to Jakarta but but many, many years ago, these people are, in a sense, considered to be warga and neighbours and, in a sense, kin to the people who live around them. And this offers an enormous amount of protection to people. So that's not to say, though, that such salons and such wadia are beyond, I guess, the kind of reach of you know, I would see it as external forces or forces external to, to neighbourhoods or that all neighbourhoods are, de- are necessarily accepting of Wadia in their midst. So I think in general what I've found in Indonesia is that it's the case that certain neighbourhoods will be more accepting of Wadia than others and in those neighbourhoods you'll find a large number of Wadia residents and in that neighbourhood, you'll usually find a couple of wadia salons. But this is not necessarily always the case. I'd also say that in different parts of Indonesia, so where you've seen the intensification of kind of regional regulations or local regulations related to public order, which at times explicitly target what is termed gender nonconformity and even wadia. So in the case of Pariaman in Sumatra, there is a regulation, local regulation that effectively bans wadia, public space, in those locations, that's placed an immense amount of pressure, even where wadia have been accepted as wadga. So in contexts like Aceh as well, um, we've seen increasingly that wadia salons are under pressure and have been attacked and raided by regional officials, and that in those contexts, wadia haven't necessarily disappeared, but rather they've adjusted their appearance and they've been told, in fact, or instructed that they have to present themselves in a masculine way or, or as the state officials see it, as, as men, so to speak. But they nevertheless work in salons and, and they continue to undertake their salon work and, and position themselves in, in the salon as a centre of social life for Wadia to this day. And we've come full circle then to that discussion of public space that we were having earlier. But another kind of space in which the general public encounters warrior is in popular culture. And even now it feels to me like warrior still have a much greater presence on Indonesian television screens, for example, than, say, Australian ones. 
What role has popular culture played in Waria Quest for recognition in Indonesia, but also in individuals' experiences of what you term becoming Waria? Waria are really visible in a way in Indonesian pop culture that coming from Australia seems kind of counterintuitive. As you suggest, Michelle, it's very common to see, even today, right, to see, although increasingly this is this is under pressure, which I'll speak to in, in a moment, but even today and up until the past few years, it's very common to see Wadia celebrities, a very famous Wadia celebrity was Dorce Gamalama, who passed away last year. Now, Dorce Gamalama, a trans woman, hosted a talk show, a popular talk show, and was a television celebrity in different kinds of variety shows for many, many years since the, the 1980s, all the way up until, I would say, the 2010s. And so Dorce is kind of one example of the way in which Wadia have kind of leveraged that initial opportunity to obtain a form of visibility that would allow recognition if they were able to present themselves as, as in a sense, beautiful, as in a sense, polished and kind of ascribing to a certain kind of international feminine style. So, of course, that kind of acceptance was not necessarily open to everybody, but what it did allow was for particular kinds of appearances in popular culture. And so in the case of Vivian Rubianti, the wadia who was the first to have her legal gender recognised in a court, she had a film made about her life called Akula Vivian that was released in 1978. And... That film is really interesting. She plays herself. Uh, her husband is played by Chris Biantorov, a very famous actor. It's kind of a, an unusual film in that it's kind of a mixture of slapstick and um, a didactic kind of lesson in medical transsexuality. But nevertheless, what that shows is how spaces of television, of film, were in a way one, one really important context where both Wadia and trans women obtained a particular kind of visibility that then led to greater forms of acknowledgement of their potential role in society. In terms of Wadia's own kind of relationship to those figures, you know, more ordinary or everyday Wadia, you know, so, so in my book I've got, you know, accounts gathered through ethnographic research, historical accounts, and not all of the people in the book are famous and glamorous Wadias with lots of I guess, more ordinary um, stories in there. But for them, I guess, what was exciting about seeing these wadia on screen um, and on stages as well, so wadia remained really well-known performers, was a sense of pride, and a sense of pride that wadia could obtain such a visible role in the nation. And so for wadia, often these forms of visibility were equated with prestasi, or a form of morally worthy good deed, if performed and performed on an ongoing basis, they could then achieve acceptance by their neighbours and acceptance by society, which was, was so important to them. So I guess for Wadia, those really well-known trans figures like Dorce Gamalama and Vivian Rubianti many, many years back, what they did was, was really capture Wadia's imagination in the opportunities that, that Wadia could could obtain to be accepted as, as full members of society. And I guess the comparison with 1980s and 1990s Australia is incredibly striking once again there. Ben, you end this book with the story of Tadi, a warrior who has worked quite unusually for the state railway company where she served food in restaurant cars. In your discussion of Tadi's story, you make the point that economic exclusion and gender nonconformity very often go hand in hand in Indonesia. What does this tell us about the extent to which Waria were actually accepted by society? So any understanding of Waria, in my opinion, requires a really detailed engagement with economic conditions that have shaped Indonesians' lives over the past 77 years. And Waria are, in a sense, no different from other Indonesians in this respect. So Waria, interestingly, have often found spaces of acceptance more readily among members of the urban poor. And so what you'll find is, so the kinds of 
situations or contexts that I mentioned before, where you would find neighbourhoods of wadiyas clustered together. Um, you might find many salons in one position. Often these are parts of the city, in, in cities all around Indonesia, that are home to many, many other kind of non-conforming figures. And so often these are the neighbourhoods that are clustered along rivers. If anyone knows Indonesia, one will know that right beside the river in a city is not where uh, one wants to live. Uh, due to flooding and the, the, the water is generally filthy. But these neighbourhoods are kind of dense and rich contexts in which wadiya form a really interesting component. And so in the case of Tadi, so Tadi is a wadiya who at the time of writing the research for this book lived in Jogja and was so integrated into this neighbourhoods and livelihoods of, of the urban poor so Tadi had indeed worked in the state railway company serving food. And so for that reason, Tadi was unable to present herself in feminine clothing or make herself up, redundant, on an everyday basis. But this was not to say that she didn't make herself up, redundant. And, and she, like many other wadiya, would gather at salons in, in the evening in the 19th, early to mid-1980s um, and make themselves up before... Uh, moving down to different parts of the city and, and street corners and public squares and scuffy areas behind railway tracks where Wadia would socialise and, and make friends and meet men and engage in various kinds of sex work. And so what I think is really important to emphasise here is that the regulation of Wadia in public space and what is seen as gender nonconformity in public space is in a way inseparable from other members of the urban poor. So Wadiya really have been, in a sense, since Ali Siddiquan offered them an opportunity to improve themselves, but even much further back than then, to even back to the colonial period, have been tasked with kind of negotiating uh, various kinds of regulations governing public space and related to public nuisance in particular, and they've done so not alone, but in the context of a whole host of other people, including female sex workers, including homeless people, including garbage scavengers, and so on and so forth. So in a sense, Wadiya's kind of relationship to the city is framed in terms of what I call a kind of socio-technical apparatus or a format that that sees the integration or the management of all of these kinds of unruly populations through technological means. So they are permitted to be in the city in so much as they kind of abide by specific kinds of rules for managing themselves and managing other members of their community. And to not do so is to risk paying a very high price indeed. And the price that you might pay for being visible in the wrong time of day or in the wrong place and being subject to various kinds of civil regulations governing public space might be to be arrested in a city raid. So the police might come and kind of round you up and they might lock you up. They might take you to a um, village far away and make you walk back to town. Or even in the new order, um, in, in precisely the moment when Tuddy's beautiful photographs were taken, was a moment where what was called the mysterious killings took place, where in an attempt to manage public order, the state officially sanctioned the murders of many thousands of members of the urban poor, particularly petty criminals and many, many others. So what I think is really fascinating about Wadia is the visibility that they had at precisely the moment when this kind of more violent register of new order state rule was taking place. And that's not to say that they were necessarily readily accepted, but rather perhaps in a kind of exemplary way, they were able to kind of negotiate the kinds of conditions of public visibility that were offered to them. I'd like to turn now to some more of the more theoretical and methodological concerns of the book. And I'd like to start here with a discussion of your fieldwork. Our listeners will have a sense, of course, of the sorts of methods that an anthropologist uses, but perhaps you could tell us a bit about the way you began engaging with the warrior community and any challenges you faced in the course of your fieldwork. So I first went to Indonesia in 2008 
And a bit like you, Michelle, I was really struck by the kind of visibility and the easy, in a sense, the seemingly, to my naive eyes at the time, easy form of socialization and, and degree of acceptance that my, my trans and, and gay Indonesian friends found. Of course, for someone coming from Toowoomba, having grown up in regional Queensland, a kind of degree of visibility of you know, gay men and, and trans women in particular was not something that was familiar to me whatsoever. So, you know, ever since that kind of initial engagement and making, you know, really close friends with Wadia and gay men since that time, I've really been fascinated with this complicated dynamic between, you know, what it, what it means to have a degree of visibility, but for that visibility to be rather a fragile form of recognition that depends really on the context so much that, that you're in. But it really can range, right, from, from seemingly, you know, complete acceptance that is, you know, imagine Maya kind of moving freely through public space to very unfortunate forms of rejection in the forms of violent and, and kind of vigilante attacks that we've seen in more recent years. So in terms of coming to Wadia, what really fascinated me was what the role of Wadia looked like, you know, given that Wadia was kind of seemingly rooted in vernacular forms of, I guess you could say, national culture, with the rising emergence of a kind of globalised transgender and, and more broadly LGBT politics. So I was really interested in that dynamic and, and the forces at play. So in engaging with Wadia, what really struck me at first was just how frequently Wadia was a subject of research. I felt like I was just but one person in a long parade of people who had come to engage with and at times bother Wadia to kind of understand uh, their position in Indonesian society. So positioning myself in that kind of you know, really dynamic traffic in representation was something that I guess fascinated me on the one hand, but also took quite some time to, to get used to. But what nevertheless interested me was how infrequently Wadia were articulated in relation to any kind of deeper kind of historical and, and cultural context as, as their life was lived. So often the kinds of questions and the kinds of framing that journalists and, and researchers would have would be narrowly determined in relation to what, you know, what I call a Euro-American understanding of gender and sexuality in terms of identity. So lots of you know, different questions about understandings of gender and when you thought yourself to be trans and how that manifested and how you appeared to be and so on and so forth. Lots of topics related to that kind of thing, but very little in the way of engagement with life as lived as I saw it. So I became really close to and am really close to my Wadia friends and collaborators and I was struck so much by how many lessons they had to offer about so much about Indonesian social life and particularly about the dynamics of social inequality more broadly. And so what I've tried to do is really position that focus. So moving away from a narrow focus on Euro-American theories of gender and, and the kind of narratives that they allow, but rather kind of listening to Wadia really carefully and learning from the kinds of theories that they offer us to understand what the meanings of recognition are in Indonesia. What does it mean for minorities to achieve acceptance? You know, how do people contend with economic marginalization and its intersection with gender and sexuality? And so I absolutely adore working with, with Wadia, and it's for that reason in particular that I see them as leaders and remarkable Indonesian intellectuals. Yeah, and I mean, there's a much broader debate to be had about the model in search of the case, isn't there, of scholars from the global north going to countries like Indonesia with a very firm understanding of how things are or should be and then trying to make reality fit into that model. But that said, you raise in the book a point about debates in the late 60s about whether individual waria were real or fake. And of course, the trope asli tapi palsu has a lot of resonance in lots of areas of life in Indonesia. But in relationship to waria, 
How do understandings at that time and maybe in the time since of what a quote-unquote real warrior is and does compare to understandings that we might find in, say, North America or Australia? Yes, this is really fascinating and I think goes to key concern that I want to illustrate in the book. So a common popular understanding uh, in Euro-American societies so say the United States or Australia, that's a kind of gloss that I use, right, for, for these kinds of contexts, is that we have an understanding of gender that is understood to relate to the sex that one is assigned at birth. And accordingly, although you know, this is an incredibly complicated area, so I'll give you know, a really quick gloss of Euro-American understandings of sex and gender, where sex and gender are not in alignment, this poses trouble for you know, legal, medical and social forms of recognition. And so, in a sense, you know, sex is seen as something that is natural and gender is seen as something that is cultural. So mapping onto a much more pervasive and long-standing binary of, of nature and culture in Western societies and a whole, whole host of other binaries as well, you know, mind and body and so on and so forth. And so in the case of trans and trans theory, what we've seen in Euro-American circles is the increasing popularity of terms such as cisgender. Uh, so cisgender as a kind of binary, in a sense, with, with transgender and cisgender referring to a kind of state of being where your gender aligns with the sex that you were assigned at birth. So I take issue with cisgender as a concept that is deployed too readily and deployed to any context absent of, of social, historical and cultural settings for the reason that I question whether anybody is really cisgender at all. Um, according to such a definition. So this kind of question of alignment that really hovers around this question of, of a cis-trans binary in a way reflects understandings of personhood, historical understandings of personhood that are grounded in deeply Euro-American assumptions. Among them, of course, sex and gender, uh, nature and culture, mind and body, and so on and so forth. So, so what is this alignment that we speak of? So if we go to the Indonesian context and we've, if we try to apply kind of model that we, we see, you know, a cis-trans binary, right, or a male-female binary, I would add, according to the terms that it's presented in Euro-American theory, I think we're going to run into a lot of trouble and a lot of misunderstandings about how gender actually operates in the Indonesian context. And that's for a whole host of reasons. I'd also add that I, I don't necessarily think that um, the cis-trans binary operates very well in Euro-American societies either. But in the Indonesian context, we have a really different and distinctive set of binaries emerging in the context of national culture. Primarily, those are not those related to nature and culture per se, but rather the asli and the palsu, the authentic and the false. And so asli and palsu, I guess a dualism or a binary, that are really key to understanding Indonesian citizenship. Asli and palsu are terms that generally deployed in the context of claims to Indonesian national identity you know, in, the, in the late colonial period and the immediate post-colonial period. So kind of defining who's, who's a citizen and who's not, whether a certain set of styles or ways of doing things is an Indonesian style of doing things or not. And so you kind of have this very distinctive binary. It's what's so interesting is the way in which this binary has been transferred into understandings of gender as well. But they, you know, Asli and, and Palsu can't be understood along similar lines as, say, nature and culture or sex and gender. In that, to say authentic and false, it sounds a little bit like an understanding of possibly sex and gender, right? And you've got an authentic or originary gender, uh, sorry, sex, and then you've got false, you know, you've got the kind of gender that you can perform and that those can give rise to the possibility of a, um, disjuncture between them, but the, there's an effort to kind of regulate them, I guess. In Indonesia, I think what, what is the case is Asli and Palsu are much more dynamic states of being. So when Wadiya speak of being Asli Wadiya, they're not necessarily speaking about condition of sex at all or in a way of gender at all. 
when they're speaking of, of being asli wariya, they're speaking of a state of being in which they recognize themselves as wariya and they're recognized as wariya by others in society. So what I think is really important in the Indonesian context and what the Indonesian context offers indeed to look back at Euro-American theories is to kind of move away from a model where we can see the individual as able to be completely separated out from society, but rather see this process of kind of gendering as kind of but one aspect of a whole host of ways in which people engage with and strive to be recognised, both as citizens but also as members of society, as neighbours and as kin. Finally, Ben, we couldn't have this discussion without referencing glamour, something for which warrior are known for and to which they aspire. You argue that the practice of dandan, of making up, is fundamentally constitutive of warrior identity. Can you walk us through this argument and its implications for your wider analysis? What does it mean to be a made-up person? So dandan is a wonderful Indonesian concept that is widely used in Indonesian society, not just among Wadiya. So I've, I've already used the concept dandan uh, or berdandan to make up. But basically dandan is a concept that refers to making oneself up. And as I kind of alluded to before in terms of, you know, this very different asli palsu dualism that operates very distinctively in relative to, say, nature, culture, or sex, gender, is that to berdandan, to make oneself up, is to bring out a character that is already inherent in you and to improve it or allow it to shine more brightly. And so Wadiya use these kinds of phrases all the time in everyday life during my fieldwork and in historical research too, I encountered these kinds of phrases. So you, know, you might say something like permak, right, or, or to be kind of polished up, ternampak, to be seen or to be made visible, to be revealed. And so what Dandan does, not just for Wadiya but for all Indonesians, is make their inherent character more shine more brightly. And so Dandan really is a term when used in, in everyday life, one that's used to say, uh, refer to the practice of making oneself up for special events. So, you know, if I was wanting to go to an important meeting at university or a graduation ceremony, I would make myself up. I would put a dandan. So I would look especially smart for the occasion. For Wadiya, it takes on a slightly different meaning in that dandan is seen as a kind of constantly reiterated state that allows you to attain kind of status of being visible as having the soul of a woman. Now, that's not the same as saying that Wadiya generally demand to be recognised as women in the context in which they live, but rather that they're, they're kind of demanding a form of recognition or claiming a form of recognition through making themselves up, through which they're seen as people with the soul of a woman and that a kind of manifestation of that soul and an effort to make that soul more visible to to those around them is dandan, right? So in a way, it's a kind of way of allowing others to see who you really are, who you wish to be recognised as. So when applied to a broader kind of understanding of Indonesian citizenship, I think this does two really important things. One is that it allows us to really interrogate more closely the role of public gender in shaping what it is to be and to be seen as a citizen. And obviously, gender is a really important way through which citizenship is kind of visually assessed, right, in all kinds of domains. You know, everyday life, in the context of state bureaucracy, you know, when you're getting your portrait photo taken for an ID card, when you're going to a wedding, when you're engaging with your family, gender is kind of really crucial. But not enough attention, I, I argue, in the book has been placed on looking at the dynamics of public, what I call public gender or the regulation of gender in public space and its nuances or its more dynamic form. The second context in which dandan becomes really important is thinking really carefully about how claims to recognition made in such a way might contrast or build on what are understood as kind of universal liberal human rights norms that are grounded in the idea of a stable individual. And these have taken form in various ways, including most recently around discourse about transgender rights, around sexual orientation and gender identity as a, as a kind of component of human rights. 
And so these instruments, I guess, are of course grounded in a specific set of assumptions, Euro-American assumptions, that kind of grant primacy to the individual person. However, I think what is worth doing in this context is going to Dundon, but Dundon, and looking a little bit more closely at how it might offer us a key or a really fascinating local or national example of the way in which claims to recognition need not only be made in such ways, but can take on all kinds of different forms, and in doing so, that those forms can really incorporate a much more encompassing vision of social inclusion and equity that extend to economic, social, familial, and other kinds of inclusion besides that related to gender identity. Well, thanks so much, Ben, for your insights in what it means to be waria in Indonesia. Just before we wrap up, would you like to tell us a bit about what you're working on now? Yes, thank you, Michelle. I've just come back from a wonderful trip to Indonesia to see friends and colleagues and update them on the progress of the book. I should also add that the Indonesian language translation rights have been assigned to the Indonesian publisher Marcin Kiri and that the Indonesian language version will also be made available in 2023 for Indonesian audiences. So as well as working on the kind of trailing aspects of my book and continuing to get the word out there and to engage in dialogue with my you know, waria and trans and transpuan friends in Indonesia about what an ethnographic history of Indonesian trans social life might tell us about the opportunities for political recognition and, and living a, a good life in Indonesia, I'm also working on a new project that is an ethnography of the meanings of gender in the context of bureaucratic documents. So while I was doing fieldwork, what really fascinated me was the huge importance that Wadi has placed on identity cards and other kinds of documents. And what was really cool was while I was there, there was a large amount of political mobilising in relation to a new regional regulation in the province of Yogyakarta at that time, which was related to public nuisance. And so in that context, the municipal police were granted additional powers to arrest homeless people and buskers. And Wadia were generally bound up in this regulation in all kinds of ways for the reason that they have a reputation in Jogja, but also many other cities as buskers and as members of the urban poor, as I mentioned. And even, you know, I had several Wadia friends who even walking down the street would find themselves arrested and accused of busking, even though they were not busking at all. They were just crossing the street. But because of the way they dressed, they were seen as a public nuisance, no less. So in that context, what I found so interesting was rather than kind of make recourse to make, sorry, make claims to recognitional rights through various kinds of you know, universal human rights mechanisms or the likes you know, on the basis of gender identity, what they did was kind of print their own identity cards and make their own versions of identity cards in the form of membership cards. And so many Wadia didn't have identity cards for different reasons and they were migrants and so on and so forth. And so this posed a problem that when they were arrested in public space, that they would then be detained for very long periods of time or they would be sent back to the region where they were born, for instance, where their family might not necessarily know their wadia or accept them. But what wadia did in response to this was make these cards, these various kinds of versions of identity cards, and then engaged in all of these kinds of meetings and public protests with and to civil registration officials in order to demand, in a way, that they be recognised as citizens. So for my follow-up project, what I'm wanting to do is really look at the gendered and kinship norms that underpin the Indonesian civil registration system, uh, which is primarily based on the Kartu Keluarga, the family card, which is a document I think established in the early 1950s, soon after Indonesian independence, in which your your kind of members of a household are listed on a single family registry. What I'm really interested in is how Wadia have engaged with these kinds of documents over the course of the past 77 years or so of Indonesian independence. I'm really keen to follow along with Wadia and engage in their struggle to obtain these documents in order to kind of have a, have a closer look to see what role gender and kinship has actually played in shaping who belongs in Indonesian society and whether there's a little bit more room there than has otherwise been 
imagine to be the case when we we only see these documents as kind of normalizing or surveilling or enforcing a heteronormative or nuclear format to kinship. Um, and that's been a lot of fun to start this project. Sounds like a fascinating project. Benjamin Hegarty, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss the made-up state, technology, transfemininity, and citizenship in Indonesia. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on this channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies.